This is a Federal News Network podcast. Trillions of dollars in federal spending can lead to at least billions of dollars that aren't paid to the right place or in the right amount to address a record high rate of improper payments. House lawmakers plan to introduce legislation. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has the latest. And Drew, before we get into the bill, just review for us how bad improper payments are and what the government defines them as. Sure. So the Office of Management and Budget, in a report that they put out in December 2021, defined improper payments as ones that either should not have been made or that were made in the wrong amount. So that can include both overpayments paying more or underpayments paying less. And it can also include ones that were made to the right recipient in the right amount, but that maybe didn't adhere to the right regulation or statute. The House Oversight and Reform Committee's Subcommittee on Government Operations recently held a hearing on how to tackle improper payments. Representative Jerry Connolly, who's a Democrat from Virginia and the chairman of that subcommittee on government operations, talked a little more in detail about what improper payments can look like for federal programs. There are many causes of improper payments. Some improper payments can be attributed to fraud, but many are simply paperwork errors. For example, when an individual or business accidentally checks a box on a form, perhaps because of confusing instructions, language barriers, or bad internet access, and by checking that box, it affects the amount provided. And that's true. There are technical causes of improper payments, but the fact is that tens of billions, the bulk of it goes out through fraudulent and just misapplication of federal benefits programs, nevertheless. And why are they so high, and what are the current numbers, Drew? Yeah, so for fiscal year 2021, that yielded more improper payments than any other fiscal year since 2003. So that's almost two decades. For fiscal 2021, that included 86 high-risk federal programs that estimated improper payments of a combined spending of $3.9 trillion. OMB found that more than 7.2% of them were improperly paid, and that's up from 5.6% in fiscal 2020. So the Office of Management and Budget reported that that totals to $281 billion in improper payments for fiscal 2021. And one of the reasons that it was so high is that the uh, improper payment rate for the federal state unemployment insurance program uh, jumped up a lot. So that was at 18.71% between July 2020 and June 2021, largely as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's roughly, as OMB estimated, between 5 and 8 percent higher than what you would see in a typical non-pandemic year. And it's probably twice all of those numbers, but that's what they're able to account. So basically, the high numbers stem from all of these programs rolled out to help people during the pandemic. That's right. And, uh, you know, that's not the only reason that it was, but it was one of the main contributing factors. And at the House subcommittee hearing that they had recently, Linda Miller, who's a principal for advisory services at Grant Thornton, said that improper payments are a big problem and they've continued to increase in recent years despite multiple efforts from Congress. Make no mistake, there was fraud and improper payments before the pandemic, and there will be even more fraud and improper payments after the pandemic if action is not taken. The current approach is simply not working. There have been five iterations of legislation focused on improper payments over the last 20 years, and during that time, the improper payment rate has steadily risen. Yes, I've watched those legislation 
pieces happen, and I've watched the improper payments for at least 20 years, and it seems to be almost an intractable problem. They, it's always around $150 billion a year, no matter what they do. So what's in this upcoming bill, Drew, that might cause some positive change here? So House lawmakers who are on this subcommittee, namely uh, Representative Jerry Connolly, are saying that they are planning to introduce legislation to tackle improper payments, and they're hoping that it's not going to be like the times before. So this bill would create a new program integrity office that's solely dedicated to overseeing agencies' efforts to track fraud, waste, and abuse in, in their program spending. That office would help agencies that are struggling with improper payments and have a lot of high-risk programs to make corrections to those programs and look into the payments more closely. And notably, that that prospective bill would emphasize the use of high-quality data. Um, That's through collecting it, sharing it, and analyzing it across different agencies. So Linda Miller at the hearing said that data is essential to effectively reduce improper payments and that an office like the one that's in that would be in this legislation focusing solely on that issue would help agencies to fix the problem. Most improper payments are caused by a lack of data verification yet when we ask agencies to do check the box compliance we fail to ask them to address the root cause of the problem. Agency leadership needs to prioritize integrity of the funds they disperse almost as much as they prioritize getting those funds out the door. Agencies need to proactively address the root causes of the problem, not with more burdensome compliance activities, but by using data and analytics that verifies the identity and eligibility of an applicant. Yeah, she's getting to the heart of it. So many of these small business loans and direct payments to individuals were just fraudulently obtained or and then they go ahead and forgive what they've given out anyways. So that's another issue. But I was just curious, Drew, during this hearing, did any of the purported mechanisms for oversight that were announced with a lot of fanfare at the beginning of all this legislation, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, whatever happened to any of that? Did anyone ask that? Which I simply ask rhetorically because now they're on to the next shiny thing, which is new legislation. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, And we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, So my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.